Are you ready for common sense retirement planning advice? Tired of the noise coming out of mainstream financial media that doesn't always have your best interest at heart? Looking for someone who will answer the tough questions that applies to your money? Well, welcome to the Plan to Retire podcast. Hello, this is Jeff Bowers with the Plan to Retire podcast. Today, I know you're probably thinking, gee, where's Jeff been? Well, we're just going to blame it on COVID like everybody else does. It's been almost, gosh, it's hard to believe, a, almost a two-year hiatus on podcasts. We're back at it now. And we have one of the most popular guests on again from a previous podcast, Dr. Apollo Lepescu with Dimensional Funds. Apollo, welcome. Hi, Jeff. Good to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, and this is awesome. Let me give you a rather esteemed introduction because for those that didn't have the pleasure of hearing him Apollo speak previously, please go back in the archives and pull it. He's extremely knowledgeable. And as I said last time, when there's two people in the room, I can tell you there's no doubt this guy's the smartest guy in this room. So Apollo Lupescu is Vice President of Dimensional Fund Advisors, where he started in 2004 after finishing his PhD in economics and finance at the University of California, Santa Barbara. During his tenure at the firm, Apollo has gained experience in a wide variety of practical subject matters. He was part of Dimensional's Investment Strategies Group, which worked directly with financial advisors in the Northeast area to assist in the development of their business, manage the internal client services team that provides broad analytical support, and then oversaw the firm's national advisor retirement business. He is currently Dimensional's, quote, secretary of explaining stuff, unquote. In this role, he frequently presents around the country and the world at financial advisor professional conferences and individual investor events. Now, prior to Dimensional, to Dimensional, Apollo had his own consulting firm, which provided services to the U.S. Department of State and the White House on a variety of projects. His interest in finance and investments led him to teaching engagements at the University of California, Santa Barbara. In addition to his Ph.D. from UCSB, Apollo has a B.A. from Michigan State University, so you're a Spartan, where he competed in and coached water polo. That's right. The good old days. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you can swim because I sink. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm a water guy. Anything that has to do with water, count me in. (laughs) Good for you. That's awesome. A fantastic sport. So we had talked a little bit before we got this podcast going, and I was telling Apollo that one of the most common things, I really narrowed down on two questions that people have, and I think he can provide some really good insight on And the two things is, one, the idea of asset allocation and how important that is, the old idea of not putting all your eggs in one basket. And two, the idea is that we can't really time the market, especially with some of the crazy events going on. So, Paul, if you take a minute, let's talk about that first point. Just give me some perspective from you and Dimensional on asset allocation. Yeah, and I think it's such a great place to start because it is not typically what you hear in the media, and it's not what a typical investor would first go to. Most often, if you ask folks about a successful investment experience, quite often they would talk about what stock should I buy? You know, what's the market going to do? Is the Fed raising interest rates and should I be making a move with my money? And so all these questions are top of mind for investors where what we found going back 70 years now of academic research is that, that probably the most important decision in investing is the asset allocation. And I think that there are twofold reasons. One is that before you start investing, you need to define a goal. Why exactly are you investing? What are you trying to accomplish with your money? 
it's almost like if you're trying to fly a jet and it could be the nicest G7, whatever it is that you want to fly, it, you know, it could be the nicest jet in the world. If you don't know where you're going, you're going to crash somewhere. So the first thing you need to know is like, where am I going? What am I trying to accomplish with my money? And that's probably one of the most important decisions and not just decisions, but considerations that an investor should have. And that's why the role of the financial advisor cannot be overstated. It's incredibly important to have a plan and a financial advisor to help disentangle all this. And once you have that plan, the next question is, how do I get from point A to point B with the least amount of risk? Because it's not all about making as much money without regard of risk. I think that the, what we learn is that what you ought to do is carve yourself a path to that financial goal. And in a way, make sure that, that you not overexpose yourself to different risks. And I think those are fundamentally why this asset allocation is so crucial because when a financial plan, what matters ultimately is the allocation depends on the goals and two different people might have two vastly different allocations. And it could be based on a variety of factors that we can get into those, but a variety of factors, even the same 50 year old person, they might be have vastly different allocations based on their circumstances in life. And then once you get there, then, okay, so how do we get you from point A to point B? And in that respect, being able to balance these trade-offs in investing between the stability of your money, and we all want to have stability in the money. On the other hand, we also need to grow the money. And those are accomplished by two different asset classes, two different investment types of investments. And at that point, if you understand what you're trying to accomplish, then you can start balancing these trade-offs. And that's when asset allocation really becomes important. And then as a side note from there, asset allocation also helps you mitigate some of the individual company risk, individual stock market risk. Because quite often, if you are trying to accomplish your goals, you might not need to have exposure to both the risk of the world, what's going on. Look at, look at what's going on in the world today. And on top of that, pile up the risk of an individual company. And asset allocation helps with diversification it, to some degree mitigate some of these individual company risks because the question becomes not what stock should I buy, but more what asset classes should I blend to get to my goal with the least amount of risk possible. Yep. And you know, this is kind of, I guess, somewhat of a segue into the timing question, but maybe not quite yet, but I always get a kick out of when there's a big market event and it's usually a loss because when the market goes up, no one cares. It's when we have the big loss and we get the experts on whichever favorite financial news network. There's always this person that says, well, now's a good time to reassess your asset allocation and your balance in your portfolio that maybe now you should rebalance it. And I often think to myself, that's kind of like What's the old proverbial thing? Let's close the door in the hen house after they're out. <laughs> That's right. I was just kind of shaking my head and think, well, we need to have a proper asset allocation to begin with. If it's a short-term investment, cash and short-term bonds. If it's longer time horizon, 10, 15, 20 years, well, then there's a place for equities. But I always get a kick out of that. It's just like, where'd that come from? Now I'm going to reassess my risk? I agree. And in fact, what you just mentioned, those two different types of investments, those investors should really consider as, as the fundamental building blocks of an asset allocation, stocks and bonds. And stocks are about ownership in companies and ownership affords you the profits, a claim to the profits that the company makes. As a, any business owner, you have a claim to those profits. But because profits fluctuate, so does the value of these investments of stocks. And that's what the stock market does. It fluctuates a lot. Bonds are about lending. And when you lend money, there is a 
typically a contract through a bond that specifies an interest rate for how long you get that interest rate. And at the back end, you get your money back. So these two asset classes are very different. And the point that he made is extremely important. Stocks fluctuate. We know that markets at time will drop because of everything that's going on in the world. There's always an event going on. And there are some good times. There's some times that are more uncertain. And that's when the value of these companies might drop because their profits are more uncertain or they are expected to be lower. So at that point, the market drops. So when the market drops, I think a good financial plan and a good asset allocation at that point would take that into account. When it's built, it takes it into account that the market will fluctuate. And at that point, okay, we expected this to happen. We didn't know when it will happen, but we expected it to happen. So at that point, we don't need to reassess anything because that's part of the plan. And the point that he made is very important. If you need money in the short run, markets tend to be chopping the short run. So you want to allocate some money to bonds. And the more immediate the needs, the more you allocate to bonds. But if you have a longer term horizon, what we found is that over the long run, the more time you give stocks, the greater the chance that you will see a positive outcome over the long run. The more you extend the time horizon, the more likely you'll see a positive outcome. So that is a crucial, crucial point that you should not adjust the allocation because of what happened yesterday or just what happened this week or whatever in the short run, because a proper asset allocation would have taken into account that something like this might happen. And then Jeff, one of the things that I always think, I moved from Michigan to California, to Southern California, I live in Los Angeles today, and I know there will be an earthquake coming (laughs) the same way that I know there will be a market downturn. I'm under no illusion to escape either of these. The problem is I don't know when, but you can do something to prepare. Like in my case, I might have water in the trunk and I have tied the shelves to the wall and bolted the house to the foundation, things that I can control. And it's the same with the allocation. You diversify, you put money in bonds and international stocks. So when that downturn happens, it might not be pleasant, but it doesn't have to be devastating. So that's my first thought on your comment. The second thought, which I think is also important to note, is that when the market drops, and we've had recently this year, this is 2022 or in March right now, and the market has dropped from the beginning of the year. In this situation, what's so interesting is that a good financial plan, a good asset allocation would also be able to adjust in times when markets move. And what I mean by that is, let's say that you have just for, this is purely for illustration purposes, that you had for your specific circumstance, a need for half the money invested in stocks and half the money invested in bonds. And as the market dropped because of all the nuttiness that's been happening this year, well, at that point, the proportion of stocks in your portfolio is now lower because the value has dropped. So bonds, let's say they held their value and even went up a little bit. At that point, the proportion of stocks and bonds is no longer 50-50, which would be the desired allocation for you. So what an advisor would do is actually look to buy stocks as they drop. So not sell them in panic like you might hear in the media, but rather look at it as an opportunity, but do it on a very systematic basis based on a program that was determined in advance that at some point we might look to actually readjust the portfolio to bring it back in balance the way we want it. And in fact, that process itself is called rebalancing. So as the market moves, that doesn't mean that you just sit there, do nothing. There are times when an advisor might actually start triggering some buys as the market drops, but that is again, part of the plan of the asset allocation. So you have to not only define the asset allocation, but what do you do along the way 
to adjust it and preserve it. And at some points, you might need to adjust the asset allocation, the, let's say the mix between stocks and bonds. But until that time, when stocks drop, if you need a particular balance of stocks and bonds, that'll be a time to buy when the market drops. Yep. Good point. I'm kind of laughing myself because uh, about 6.30 this morning, before I went to the gym, I did my quarterly rebalancing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's not a recommendation for anyone to buy or sell any particular security though, folks. Stating a fact, exactly as predetermined and this morning was it. And it really helped. I mean, Jeff, I don't know, like we've seen these two months of the markets being down twice, but you go back to 2020 in the first quarter and the market was down quite significantly. And at that point, a lot of folks were lighter on stocks just because they dropped in value. And a really smart way to deal with it is to rebalance because it brought the stocks back to the proper weight in the portfolio. And the good news is as the market rebounded, that allowed you to capture the market returns in full rather than have a diluted allocation because the rebalancing wasn't done. But again, as you pointed out, there's not a one size fits all. Nobody should read into this that I need to go. No, there's a cost rebalancing. It depends. Sometimes there's a cost. Sometimes there might not be depending if it's new money or not. So it's a little more complicated, but it's something that investors should be aware. As the market drops, perhaps another way to look at it is rather than selling in panic to think about buying to rebalance. Good point. Now that leads us right into the second point, and that's market timing. The second thing, and I continually hear this from folks, whether it's friends, neighbors, clients, family, my kids. (laughs) (laughs) Should I get out of the market now when, quote, until things are better. Right. Let's speak to that timing and share with us some of your wisdom on that aspect. It's so interesting when you hear until times are better. And it's quite often you hear people on the news like, you know, the Dow is too high at this level and the NASDAQ is too high at this level, whatever the, the case might be. And this is not a good time to be invested. You know, what's been interesting to me is nobody tells you what is the right level. If 33,000 is too high, okay, great. What's the right one? Is it 31, 30? Is that when you should get back? What if it never gets there? And that kind of leads to one of the main problems that I found is with that strategy. First of all, let me acknowledge it, that it is intuitively appealing. I want to be invested when times are good. When things don't look as good, why not just park my money on the side, wait for things to calm down and come back in the market and I can avoid the losses? It absolutely makes a lot of conceptual sense. The issue with the strategy is actually being able to implement it because if you were to implement the strategy, not only that you need to know when to get out, but there's an equally important decision that that you ought to make at exactly the same time. When do you get back in the market? And that's been the biggest issue. People who have pulled the money out, they didn't know when to get back in. And sometimes they might have avoided some of the losses. The trouble is they've actually probably missed more on the upside then they protected themselves on the downside. So the main issue that I find with this is not knowing when to get back in the market. And if you don't know, I can tell you from my years and years ago experience (laughs) when I've done this, the stress of being in the market is very quickly replaced by the stress of being out of the market. (laughs) Because you see the market rallying and you go like, when do I get back in? So it's stressful one way or another. You're going to have stress whether you're in or out of the market. But there are two other things that it's so interesting to point out as well from my old day. I did this like when I started investing 25 years ago. And what I also realized is two other things. Number one is that I'm not only invested in the market. So the US market, as I see on the news, it's only a component 
of my portfolio. But I still have some stocks in, in other countries. I have some smaller company stocks. I have some bonds. I have some real estate stocks. So do I sell them all? There's a real issue there. Like, what is the market? Because <laughs> if you say, I don't want to be invested in the market, typically on the news, those are large U.S companies, but I have a lot of other investments in my portfolio. And does it mean I have to sell them all? It's really unclear to me how to think about that. And secondly, there is a real cost associated with taxes. In my case, this is again, 25 years ago, when I tried something like this, I got a tax bill and I was like, stunned. It's like, not only that I was losing money because I missed the upside, (laughs) but I got the tax bill. So I realized that what I got to keep when I sold wasn't the full amount. There was a penalty and that was a tax because my investments actually had some capital gains and I had to pay them. And on top of that, because I didn't have a lot of money back then, and this is like 25 years ago, the transaction costs were also high. So not only that I had to pay the taxes, but also the transaction costs for the little money that I had, it was a one and done. There was a one-time lesson that I learned the hard way, never try this again. So I don't believe this is a winning strategy. I think that that for people who are concerned about their portfolios and market fluctuations, which are normal, that's just the nature of the market. For those folks, I think that that if they want to accomplish that goal, rather than moving in and out or thinking what's the time to be invested or not be invested, a better way to think about it is, first of all, own some bonds. Bonds and not to move in lockstep with the market. So having some bonds can be a really powerful strategy to mitigate volatility. Secondly, you want to diversify beyond what you see on the news. What typically you see on the news are large companies in the US, and that's what's considered to be the market. Now, the way that I look at it, the market is a global opportunity set. There are over 10,000 different companies in which you can buy ownership across the world. And you know, as much as we love Ford and GM in the US, there's a BMW and a Toyota abroad. So it's important to consider a global opportunity set. And also even smaller companies in the US. You have some large companies, but there are about 2,000 plus smaller companies in which you can buy ownership. And those are not visible on the news typically. They're not part of the Dow Jones or the S&P. So that's the second thing that you can do. And the third is really to rebalance what we talked about. Make sure that you have a program in place that you take the emotion out of investing. And when you create the systematic process of rebalancing, at that point, you don't need to involve the emotions that typically trigger sort of the opposite reaction. When markets are down, fear tends to settle in. And a way to flee the market, and what you do at that point is basically flee the market because that seems to eliminate the risk. In fact, it's exactly the opposite because that's driven by emotion. Investing should be about buying low and selling high. We think about emotions is like when the markets are dropping, that's fear settles in, but that's when we'd be selling at a low. (laughs) And then buying back at a high. Exactly. (laughs) Which is exactly the opposite. That's why emotions tend to be such a big problem. But that's why an advisor is so important to make sure that you address the human element of investing. At the same time, when you make trading decisions, there is a systematic investing process rather than one driven by emotions. I joked with my neighbor a couple months ago, we were talking about this aspect and we were going out to get our morning paper. We were talking, I said, you know, if your house was valued every minute of the day (laughs) and you saw the fluctuation in the home value or the value of your home, I think there'd be a lot more for sale signs around the neighborhood. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And probably not as many buyers, right? Because everybody would be swinging on the emotion. That's right. Yeah, but that's a very good point. Now, Apollo, you give a tremendous amount of in-person 
speeches and webinars, as I'm sure you have over the last two years, and podcast recordings and interviews. Out in the hinterlands, what are you hearing? What are common things, if we haven't touched on anything today, what are common topics and what are things that people are asking right now? Well, for this particular month of March, this is the beginning of March of 2022, I think that I can say that on the topical issues, let's differentiate between the topical issues, which are top of mind at this particular point in time versus something that's more evergreen that I've here, but it's not necessarily only for this moment in time, but they're just maybe a little bit longer lasting issues. The big ones that I'm hearing right now, obviously being March 1st, is the geopolitical risk and the potential impact that the war in Ukraine might have on the economy and markets. I hear folks being a little bit concerned about inflation and what does it mean to investments and how can they stay ahead of inflation. I'm hearing questions about the market volatility, that we've had a period of really slow, quiet markets, not slow, but quiet markets, not a lot of movement. And all of a sudden, the last few months, it's just been a lot more choppier. What's going on with that? There are some questions about the Fed. The Fed has kept the rates low for very long. Some folks might say, well, that might have fueled the market rally. What's going to happen now if the Feds was to increase rates? And I would say that these are probably the top four questions that I'm hearing these days. And on the more evergreen, I think there has been more of an interest in ESG investing, and that is the environmental and social governance investing where people are trying to align their personal values with the way they deploy their capital. I think there is a lot more interest in that question. And beyond that is you have legislative changes. What can we do to perhaps mitigate some of the tax consequences of any potential changes in DC? So if there's any tax law, anything that changes, what can we do as investors to make sure that we don't have to pay more than we have to? And in that respect, there have been some interesting solutions brought to market that are, in a way, addressing particularly the tax issue, whether they're ETFs or separately managed accounts. That's interesting you bring up the ESG question or topic, because I have this idea in my head, and maybe it's just because this is what I did today. I came up with Jeff's own uh, Putin sanction plan today, where my recently purchased plug-in hybrid, I plug it in in the garage, drive to work and I can drive home. I have a few more errands to run today. So what I did, I brought the cord with me to the office and it's plugged in right now, sitting out in the parking lot that I'm probably going to run all day today on electric. And I'm thinking, I want to see how long I go before I have to buy gas again. Yeah, that's smart. And I'm not anti-fossil fuels, far from it. But (laughs) it's just my own little sanction program that I'm implementing today. And I'm interested to see how much we see that in behavior, because I'm a huge believer in behavioral finance and just watching how people react to things in this world of social media and TikTok where events can move so rapidly that it's funny, like it seems like our policymakers can't even get ahead of it because it moves so rapidly, they don't have enough time to react. And I think ESG is a big part of that. And I think you're right. I think that's a lot of why I see more folks I talk to on a day-to-day basis actually bringing that up to me of different walks of life. And it's interesting that you see that too. Yeah, no, and I see that. And what's interesting, Jeff, you brought up something that's so important is that a lot of times with ESG, folks look at it as a silver bullet, that we're going to change the world through ESG. And for sure, it helps in certain ways send a message to companies. And in some cases, it might have an impact. What do we find a lot more is that ESG investing is much more about values investing, not value, but values, about what are your personal values as and, and aligning those. 
And, and quite often, if one of the ways in which we can change the world is actually exactly what you mentioned, our own behavior, how we all act. And I think that's the demand we have for different products. I think that is a very powerful tool that we have that's at our disposal right now. And it can go, like, as you said, I'm going to run electric. I have to say, 25 years ago, when I was in Michigan, I would turn on the water when I brushed my teeth and I would just stare at myself and the water kept running because it was Michigan and it's plenty of water. As I moved to Los Angeles, no, I wet my toothbrush and then I turn off the water. It never occurs to me now to let the water running for a couple of minutes just for the sake of it. So I've changed certain ways. I think we all have. And I think that that consumer behavior can have a big impact in terms of what we do because it would certainly translate through supply and demand towards the environmental goals or social goals for the matter. Awesome. And you've been a fantastic guest today. So to wrap it up, I'm going to ask you a non-financial related question. So since you're a pool guy and a swimming guy, you can weigh in on that age old debate of chlorine pool versus saltwater pool. Where does Dr. Lepescu stand on that? Saltwater pools. And the main reason for that is that I've been enough pools where, first of all, I think saltwater pools still have some chlorine. I think it's just the way it activates a bit. So it's, I don't think it's like it's, but I've been enough pools where the smell was so bad on my skin that I would just, for days, I just <laughs> smell like a chlorine pool. And the saltwater tends to be a little more gentle and doesn't smell as bad on my skin. <laughs> See, you know, it's funny. I had uh, my best friend's retired from the military and he was a well-known swimmer and did some great things for our country in the water and we'll leave it at that. But he made a comment one time. He said, swimmers, we like chlorine. The water polo people like the salt water because of the buoyancy. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's funny. Although I'm not sure they put enough salt in there to make, it, <laughs> make us float better. But by the way, the, you guys have a great team in Annapolis. I've actually been there a couple of times and they have a great program at the academy. So it's a great sport and I have kids and they want a team sport that's outside. I know uh, there's certain sports on the East Coast, lacrosse and all that. But if you want an alternative to the very popular football, lacrosse, baseball, <laughs> here's an off the beaten path. And then when you come to California, that's a really big sport at UCSB, UC Santa Barbara. There was no football team, but one of the most popular teams was the water polo team. So in California, at least, they got more recognition. Like some of the schools where you went to college, you know, hockey is a big thing. And they're at the point where they'll have the Friday night hockey collegiate game and they'll have a band, a rock band playing in there. And it's like, man, football team doesn't have a rock band, but their <laughs> hockey team does. Well, hey, you've been a gracious host or, or guest for us, I should say, with your time today. It's awesome. I really appreciate it. You know, and for those folks, just remember anything we talked about, investments are not a specific recommendation for anyone. You should always uh, certainly agree with prospectus, no different from Dimensional's products and anyone else before you invest or send money. And you can always go to dimensional.com for more information about dimensional funds and the risks and such associated with it. And, you know, the old adage, you know, past performance is no guarantee of future results, is it, Apollo? That's, That's absolutely right. true. <laughs> That's right. So, hey, I appreciate your time today, and it's wonderful to have you back again. And I'm glad you survived uh, COVID, my man, and you look healthy and you look you sound fantastic. So, thanks for all your time today. It's always fun talking to you. Thanks for having me, and thanks to all the listeners for taking the time to uh, download and listen to podcast. That's right. Thank you for tuning into the Plan to Retire podcast. Head on over to plantoretire.com. That's the number two. So plan the number two, retire.com. To learn more, schedule a no obligation introductory phone call or to subscribe to this free podcast on your favorite podcasting platform.
We'll see you next time on the Plan to Retire podcast.